Hello, everyone, and welcome to Esoterica. In uh, today's episode of the interview, I am delighted to introduce you to Enzo Salon Surin. Uh, Enzo is a Haitian-born, award-winning poet, educator, publisher, and a social advocate. He is the author of three collections of poetry, including When My Body Was a Clinched Fist, which is the winner of the 21st Annual Massachusetts Book Award for Poetry. Uh, coming up, uh, he is um, the co-editor of Where We Stand, Poems of Black Resilience, which will be published uh, this year by Cherry Castle Publishing. And so is also the recipient of a Brother Thomas Fellowship from Boston Foundation and a Penn New England Discovery Award uh, winner as well. Uh, it goes on. Enzo is like, I mean, I could go on, but I'll just a little bit more. Enzo teaches creative writing and literature at Bunker Hill Community College. And he is also the founding editor and publisher at Central Square Press and the president executive director at the Faraday Publishing Company, which is a nonprofit literary services organization and social advocacy organization. My goodness. Uh, Enzo is one busy man. Um, welcome, Enzo. And thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you so much for having me. I've been looking forward to this podcast all week. <laughs> oh, um, well, that makes me so happy. So, uh, so uh, let's start. All, I mean, let's, not all week because we, we planned this a little while back. And so we, we did. Um, and actually, we met through Instagram, you know, which is actually a weird thing to say. I can't believe I admitted yeah. that um, live. But um <laughs> You know, when I came across your work, I mean, I'm it's you know, I I, I feel an immediate, you know, uh, mm. like I will accept I should say is I will accept invites now reach out to anyone that looks like a poet or a writer <laughs> or like a kindred spirit in that way. And so yeah. it, you, you fit all those bills. Um, and I'm, I'm so glad that you could make it. Oh, I'm and, so glad we connected. You know, the um, let's I mean, God, you've done so much, but let's start with your, your poetry hat first. Um, and like, I would love to start with, uh, if you could tell us a little bit about uh, your collection of poetry, When My Body Was a Clinched Fist, um, I, our readers would, and, and viewers would love to hear about it. Um, what, what inspired that, that work? Well, it was, um, it's a collection that deals with 10 years of coming, coming of age in New York City where I grew up. Um, I was born in Haiti, but I grew up you know, about nine till I was about nine. And then I came to the States and I lived in Jamaica, Queens. And it really chronicles what the experience was like. And at the time, you know, New York City was dealing with a lot of, you know, different types of uh, violence, you know, um, but also it was grappling with the crack epidemic, you know, drug mm -hmm. epidemic at the time. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it was also, you know, dealing with um, an evolution in music as well, right? The birth mm -hmm. of hip hop and fashion and, you know, Basquiat. And so there was a lot going on in the city, a lot of creative energy mm -hmm. um, in the midst of all that. And the book really chronicles what it was like as a kid, especially one who's, who's shy as I am and who's as sensitive as I am um, as a person, but definitely as a kid, definitely more shy. Um, when you take a look at what that does, to, you know, to a child in that environment mm -hmm. and the tendency to shut down and to not be able to respond mm -hmm. or you react in a completely different way. And so in a way that that's that's not necessarily what's expected of you being this mild mannered kind of kid. 
Um, and so it was about making forced decisions. And the book is about making the tough decision not to engage in what the environment was trying to get me to be involved in, mm -hmm. but also more significantly how that came at a cost. And it meant that I had to sacrifice a part of myself just to survive the environment. Oh, can, can you elaborate on that? How, what did you, how did you sacrifice part of yourself? And what, what was that part? And, and so, and, and you make a lot of decisions. And I think as children, you know, I often hear how resilient children are and, and I don't, I don't doubt that premise, but I do think it comes at a cost, right? Mm -hmm. so That's true. You either participate as part of the, you know, in the violence or in the environment that's trying to pull you in and become mm -hmm. what is trying to force you to be, or you decide that I'm not going to participate and which, which also means you have to sacrifice a part of yourself. Right. Right. So there's a line in, in one of the poems and the title poem where my body was a clenched fist, my body has a clenched fist. The poem addresses the idea that no matter what you do, you have to make a decision about, and once you make it, you can't go back. And mm -hmm. so not making it is also making a decision, right? right. Not right. choosing certain things, which means you have to uh, kill a certain part of yourself. Mm -hmm. And what that looks like looks very different depending on the individual. But, but I had to make a decision about whether or not I wanted to sustain the, the type of person to be in the trajectory for the type of person I wanted to be. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I chose to hold on to that, but, and that's why the metaphor, the clenched fist was birth as part of this poem, um, this collection, because mm -hmm. as a fist, it's, so it's about holding, I mean, it could be used to fend off, to protect, but at the mm -hmm. same time, when we have something valuable, we want to hold on to, we, rip it and if you look at your hand that's that's in the shape of a fist as well and so mm -hmm. it was really about protecting the inner child the innocence mm -hmm. the sensitivity and so forth um and to be able to survive in that environment as well mm -hmm. well i mean the metaphor when i came across the title is is you know exceptionally strong mm -hmm. and and really resonates i think it's something uh universal that almost anyone can relate to um and, uh, you know, in terms of the collection of poetry, and, and I hope I'm not bringing up uh, uh, something that's too traumatic for, for today, but I did read elsewhere that um, the collection was in part inspired by a friend of yours who was murdered. Um, can, you, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, and, and thank you for, you know, for prefacing the, the challenge and the difficulty of it um, in talking about that. Because it's actually one of the, when reading the collections, all the readings that I've done, there are very few poems that I've read out loud that deal with that particular um, situation. But mm -hmm. it's about sort of waking up with some, you know, with this void, but at the same time, anger. So when I said that at some point you're forced to make tough decisions about mm -hmm. whether or not you wanted to participate in the same sort of violence. And so there's there are two reactions you can you know, react violently in trying to, you know, figure out what to do next. Mm -hmm. And there's a part of you that says, I think as a kid, I recognize that as well, that there's never an end to violence. There's only mm -hmm. more violence, right? And so in that moment, having that wisdom as a kid um, to be able to say, because you're paying attention to what's going on around you, right? Mm -hmm. 
something happens to someone you love, then you react, and then that person, you know, has their friends react, and there's all sorts, all sorts of reactions, right? Mm-hmm. This play out because that's humanity, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's always some sort of um, response that comes, but I think in that moment, recognizing the fact that the danger that was around me was real, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I think at some point, you you get to the point you say, well, maybe I can get by without this affecting me in this way, right? But then it it will affect people mm-hmm. around you, and then you'll have a, a decision to make, not a choice. There's actually a poem in the collection where I talk about the difference between having a choice and making a decision. And and a choice is having options, right? A decision is somebody else choosing these options for you and telling you to choose. And they use that word choose, but since I didn't have, I didn't create the options, I'm not choosing, I'm deciding. Um, I compare that to a buffet Right, you can want whatever you want, but you're making a decision about what to eat. Mm-hmm. You're not, you don't have a choice. It's a decision. Because if you had a choice, you'd say, "Can I have something that's not here?" And then right. you, you know, then you'll get right. the no. And so when you're in that environment, you think you're making choices, but it's really decisions, right? Mm-hmm. Both decisions have repercussions, and so then you have to say, when I say a part of you dies, it's knowing that you cannot retaliate, right? Or you mm-hmm. don't want. So what do you do with that anger? What do you do with that frustration? And so at some point when we start to talk about traumatic responses, the clenched fist metaphor is also how the body itself folds into itself, right? As a way of protecting itself, but it mirrors the way trauma works through bodies, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and how we embody our traumas in our bodies. And so there's you know scientific research that shows it, psychological research that shows it, right? And mm-hmm. so in that moment, it's about where do I put this hurt? Where do I put that level of hurt? And and I carried it with me for a very long time. Um, but I think it is also about writing. Mm-hmm. How writing was a very good um, opportunity for me to release some of these things, to put words to some of these things, and mm-hmm. to, be able to do so through poetry was, um, you know, it was a godsend. It's definitely a gift because. I don't know how else I would have been able to process the world if not through poetry in that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's fascinating. I mean, you were talking about writing and trauma. And I think um, a lot of writers, I mean, I, I even wonder if writers turn to writing to process trauma. I mean, you know, how, I mean, for you, you mentioned it was cathartic and help you put words to emotions. I mean, just, what I mean, how would you recommend to other writers who are who are dealing with trauma? I mean, do you think this is a good avenue? I mean, is like it just what are your thoughts about writing and trauma? Well, it's it's a very good question, Ayo, to ask because would I recommend that folks write a book about it? <laughs> Not necessarily, right? right? Because writing this this book was was traumatic in itself because right. To do the poems justice, meaning to do these situations justice, the experience justice, you have right. to relive some of those moments, right? That's, yeah, that's true. That, yeah. But the fact that you're rehearsing some of the trauma already, mm-hmm. right? And, and some of the work is ex- is essential to do, not on the page, but mm-hmm. in real life, right? Meaning I talk about how poetry is not... Um, 
it's not therapy, right? right? Right. It's therapeutic for sure, but it's not therapy, right? It doesn't take the place of, of therapy, which is why at the heart of all this, I, I penned it because I want us to have a very good conversation about mental health services that are offered mm-hmm. in environments where people are experiencing traumatic scenarios over and over and right. in some places more often than others, right? And so in, in writing about an experience, you have to go through certain stages. Mm-hmm. You have to be ready to face it and to talk about it and then to write about it. Mm-hmm. Very and so a lot of folks, they get to the point where they, they feel like I've processed this. I'm in a good place, mm-hmm. but there's no way I'm going to share this with the rest of the world. Right. The advocacy as- aspect of what I do mm-hmm. um, encouraged me to keep going because. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll share a quick story with you that. One of the one of the times that I thought, OK, enough was enough, like. I'm done writing this, right? Okay. Um, I was working in Boston at the time, and during lunchtime, we used to have these pickup basketball games in the gym with all the staff on campus. Mm-hmm. And the door was open one day, so I was taking a break, and I walked out, and here comes a young kid from, you know, from the neighborhood. And I was like, hey, you want to come in and shoot some hoops with us, right? He was like, no, no, that's okay. And so he just hung out, didn't say anything for a few minutes. And then he said, I saw somebody get shot last night. And then I thought to myself, of all the places and of all the people in the world, right? He comes to that particular place in time and then feels comfortable enough to tell me. He doesn't know who I am. Right. Somehow he sensed that there was something. And and I just remembered that I carried that conversation, however mm-hmm. it was, with me, because it reminded me that that many years later, there are young kids going through the same kind of things. Now, what services are available to him? Mm-hmm. Right? He's going to go back to this. How does he process this? And right. I said, you talk to anyone about it, right? And he's just like, no, I can't. I can't tell anybody about it. Or I couldn't tell, right? And then, then he mm-hmm. disappeared, mm-hmm. right? Until he went back, and I just remember I carried that with me, which. At some point, I was writing these poems. I realized there are other kids currently going through this, right? And other neighborhoods going through similar things. And so I made it. I made it through. And so I wanted to give back. I wanted to have a way to voice um, the struggles, similar struggles that we go through. But there Mm -hmm. were other people that didn't make it, you know, like my friend. And and so who's going to tell their stories, right? Who's Mm going to be able to, you know, to, to chronicle what that experience is like until we make some significant changes in how we address um, social violence and even, you know, the violence that police direct towards mm-hmm. those communities. And so, mm-hmm. um, and so then you become victim on both ends. Right? right. And so who do you call is the question, right? right. I mean, I don't know. Who do you call? I mean, it's, I guess that's why this, this student or this, this child knew to come to you somehow on, a, on some sort of, yeah. You know, some sort of, you know, psychic level. Uh, it's, I mean, it's tragic and, and, and heartwarming. Um, I mean, okay. So tell us, um, uh, speaking about resilience, <laughs> let's talk about uh, this new collection of poetry you have coming out, uh, Poems of Black Resilience. Uh, how did that come about? Uh, very good question. I'm excited about it. And here's, oh, 
and I can't wait for you to receive your. your I can't wait either. Um, but it was the onset of, I think, 2000 and 2018. So we're dealing with uh, a newly elected president here in this mm -hmm. country. Right. One that had promised and had and was starting to deliver in and separating the country and dividing the country in many ways mm -hmm. and also incite certain types of conversations and dialogue that was extremely familiar to black Americans because right. we've been there before. And the whole concept of going back in time to a time where America benefited a particular group of people more than the others, mm -hmm. um, we needed a way to, uh, to respond. And so we didn't set out to do an anthology and by me, I mean, Melanie Henderson and Truth Thomas, where I was in D.C. at the time for a writer's conference. And we just got together over food, mm -hmm. right, as a group of folks. And a number of folks were invited. And we just came and we ate. And then at some point, you know, what happens when you have a group of poets together in a room? We begin to read some poetry, right? It's almost right. like a jam session between musicians. Like, you don't necessarily plan it on being that. And, and then we started to read more and more poetry. Mm -hmm. And then once that was done and we all went back to our separate cities and so forth, that feeling stayed with us. Like we felt comforted, mm -hmm. we felt seen, we felt supported. And shortly thereafter, we started to talk about, well, what would it be like if we put together a collection mm -hmm. to commemorate that experience because no one was there to see it other than the folks in the room. And right. we have with to document such moments because to go forward like that's what resilience looks like right in the midst mm -hmm. of all this chaos and everything else people coming together supporting each other and you feel seen and you feel supported and there's a sense of energy right that that, that pulse pulses mm -hmm. through you and so we were empowered to do that and so and the anthology took a little bit longer to put together and we invited another set of poets to come in and it's an incredible collection because we have many different types of voices representing what we mean by black resilience, right? Mm -hmm. And in the United States, in America, what we talk about in terms of blackness and how politicians, you know, and policies continue to be generated to marginalize people even more. Um, this is like centuries, you know, centuries of dealing with that. And so it really chronicles different perspectives and different voices of Mm -hmm. ways that we celebrate ourselves it's not just about protest but right. love as well right and mm -hmm. how we get through by getting together and having meals together and loving each other and so forth and how blackness represents so much more than what is being depicted um mm -hmm. is being defined for us by other people mm -hmm. um, yeah it goes back to your decision uh, versus versus choice right yeah yes yes yeah uh, I, I mean, I would love to hear one of the poems. I mean, either from from your collection or from this new collection. Would you be willing to share one with us? Yes, sure. Oh. I actually will read a poem from from when my body was a clenched fist. Um, okay, great. Was, we talked about that transition and having to make choices, and. The first poem in the book is a poem titled Birth of a Clenched Fist. And it really talks about the transformation when I recognize that to survive this environment, I would have to become a different person. Mm -hmm. And 
it, there needs to be a physical change that would need to happen for that um, to really come to fruition. So mm -hmm. birth of a clenched fist. Born in epidemic, circa 1986, Jamaica, Queens, when tiny white caps filled modern day cotton, moored most under a parking lot's dim cone of light. When paraded in chambers of those born to triggers was that sin which weaned father from son, tricked out the best in us, a resilient few kept from boxes, though what was left was worsted in haze on those horrid nights when what was promissory was plight was norm and what was dealt mnemonic so strong I kept it I kept it in my mind like one rehearsing lines in an orograph of pain, a pain like bait that turned gain into the cleanest demise. And when I stood to cleave it, the fight empty as cavity, the strife marked by omission everything i saw was enemy even my own face fair game and that particular poem chronicles what i was practicing in the mirror as a kid mm -hmm. how to mean mm -hmm. and i would turn my face certain ways nope that's not mean enough nope i right. can see the innocence no i can still see the sensitivity, like you need to look tougher. And so it was mm -hmm. that process. That's what I meant by a certain part of yourself you had to let go of, right? right. So you had to put on a face, even though right. inside you were guarding this. If I put on this face, maybe they won't know. Right. right? Someone that they can pick on because I'm not going to choose to be a part of that violence. And so, um, so it was that essence in recognizing that. Right. Wow. And that was powerful. I mean, that was a very, that line stood out at me. It was, it's a very powerful line. Thank you. Um, I mean, fascinating. Um, so before we move on to, uh, you know, listening to more of your, your publishing advocacy work, uh, let's, I mean, let's talk a bit more generically about writing. Uh, yeah. I mean, you were born in Haiti and you said you, you obviously moved to New York when you were a child, but um, are there Haitian writers that influence you? I mean, is there part of that early upbringing that still inspires your writing today? That's a very good question. One that um, I love to answer because I come from a storytelling tradition, mm -hmm. right? And so Caribbean folks in general love to tell stories. And so when folks ask me who are some of the Haitian writers that have influenced me, I'm like, well, it was my grandmother and it was my grandfather, my aunts and uncles, because we would tell stories. And as a kid, that was like my excitement on the weekends, right? And like on a, on a Friday or Saturday night, and we, we all gathered and, and we would tell stories. And of course, you know, being kids, you couldn't contribute, right? You had to listen. <laughs> so I paid attention, you know, and I was biding my time. And it's kind of like, well, I got a story to share. It was like, oh, sit down, you're a kid. You know, we're telling our story. <laughs> um, I love that. But one of, the, one of the things that I loved, though, was a riddle night, right? Where mm -hmm. that's all you had to figure out what the riddle was. And mm -hmm. so kids got to participate as part of that. And at some point, I got pretty good at solving some of these riddles. And then I realized a whole lot of that is part of why I write poetry in the way that I do. Because mm -hmm. on the surface, you may read a statement and it kind of makes sense, but then it doesn't at the same time. But then if you give yourself a few minutes, you'll be able to mm -hmm. figure out the essence of what I'm trying to address. Now, mm -hmm. the storytelling aspect is the idea that we all have stories to tell. 
um, mm -hmm. that it's free, right? And so writing is one of those things that technically you don't need any equipment. You can write with your finger in the sand and you write a story, right? And so I just remember thinking, I don't have to go buy a guitar. I don't have to go buy an instrument very costly. All I needed was a pen mm -hmm. and a pad, right? Very cheap. Right. And true. so at some point you realize also that writing is one of those things that is free because thinking is free. And so right. as a kid, I spent a lot of time just imagining and thinking about things. And so a lot of writing for me starts up here. It starts with the way we process information and then you write it down to document it. So a lot of that is part of the Haitian tradition, Caribbean culture mm -hmm. in general, but specifically I was around that. I was around people who they weren't writers per se, but they had great stories to tell and they told them. Right. And I kind of feed into that in my own writing. That's amazing. I mean, just, I mean, actually that's, that's, that actually makes a lot of sense. Um, the, I mean, you touched on the, the puzzles and how like the, the early puzzle making kind of led you to poetry. I mean, I mean, you picked poetry over prose. I mean, and I'm always curious. I mean, I find, I find poetry. Um, I mean, I, I write, I write prose, but poetry is, is, a, you're right. It's a puzzle. It's a challenge. I mean, why did you, why were you inclined towards poetry versus prose? Well, interestingly enough, I started out writing in prose form and writing scripts and stories. Um, mm -hmm. I call them scripts because they were almost like uh, movie scripts, right? I was writing screenplays right. and, and stage plays, but it wasn't until junior high school when, you know, as as teen as teenagers, you start to become a bit more introspective, right? And mm -hmm. where am I? What's going on? And I remember looking outside of the window of a classroom. And it was rainy and there was rain coming down the side of a tree. And I remember thinking, oh, is the tree sad? Can trees cry? Right. And so I started to ask some of those questions. And then at some point I said, oh, I wonder if the tree is crying because it's sad or it's mm -hmm. crying because it knows that I'm sad, but I can't cry my own tears. Right. And so all of a sudden I said, wait, why was that thought? Why was that? Mm -hmm. That was in right. prose. And yeah. I fed into that and I kind of like that question, right? The idea that a tree could actually know what I'm feeling and express it because as I mentioned, mm -hmm. you don't cry in that environment. Right. right? You don't show yeah. any softness and weakness or sensitivity, right? And so all of a sudden I said, wait, that's different. When I wrote something, I showed it to one of my teachers and they were like, have you read the work by this poet and that poet? And I was like, What's poetry, <laughs> right? right? I didn't have that formal name for it, even though I kind of had this inclination for it. But after that day, I didn't. I've never stopped writing poetry, and so hmm. I write prose and I write scripts. I write librettos. I write all sorts of things, right? But at the hmm. end of the day, poetry becomes like that—that that staple meal for me. That's that's who right. I am. Mm -hmm. yeah. that's fascinating. Um, I mean, there's it's just so much that you do and it's, uh, I don't know how, I, how you keep up with it all, but let's move uh, from your poetry and writing to uh, your social advocacy work, um, which I guess also bleeds out of your writing life. So tell us a little bit about that. Yes. And, and it's using writing to, to change, right. To, to, right. to impact change. And I think I recognized that my, my writing was starting to touch people on a personal level and saying, mm -hmm. oh, I want this experience. But then I started to notice that there's also a tradition uh, when you talk about Caribbean, eventually, right, Caribbean literature and how 
and even music, right? Mm -hmm. So I started to interrogate some of the songs, my favorite songs from childhood, and I realized, oh, we were dancing, but this is a protest song. Right. This is a song about fighting the system that's oppressing this, or this is a song about that. And I realized that's a rich tradition in terms of right. using music, right? You know, Bob Dylan, right? Using mm -hmm. music as a way of, and so no matter the culture, folks have always used music as a way of doing that, but also writing as well. And so I wanted to follow in that rich tradition right. uh, to be able to say, what can I do? What can I articulate um, that others may not be articulating in that moment? But at the same time, how do I get you to say, you know, what's going on with you? How do I get mm -hmm. other people to become writers, right? And tellers of their own stories. And so the social advocacy is, I won't be the loudest person on the corner and I won't be on the microphone, but at the same time, behind the scenes, I am encouraging people and through mm -hmm. my workshops, right? To write stories, to tell their own stories and as a way of writing, because when you write, things become permanent. Right. In fact, things become law when they're written, right? So that says mm -hmm. that writing has power. And so if you're able to tell your own stories, they can't erase that, right? They can deny you a microphone, they can deny you, right? But if it's written, someone will be able to read it at some point and be able to say, you were here and this is what happened to you, right? right. Or what's happening to me now. And so advocacy becomes very much a part of the work that I do. Right, no, it's, that's very, very true. Uh, well, this has been very illuminating. We, we're almost out of time, but uh, one last question. Um, if you could tell our viewers to buy one book, a book of poetry or a book right now, what is something that you think everyone needs to have read? That's a very tough question. <laughs> Sorry, I put you on the spot there. Yes. Um, and it's, it's kind of funny because as a writer, my question, you know, answering that question, I, I always have a hard time answering in terms of you know, a particular book, a particular author. And then it's more about stories, right? And so okay. more recently, I would say, where do you come from? Right. Find that story out. Right. Because someone has that story. And if you don't mm -hmm. know it, you should know it. And if you do already know it, find out a little bit more about that. Because I think more than any other book, it teaches you um how to fundamentally approach writing your own story and telling your own story versus mm -hmm. reading what somebody else may be doing. It's just kind mm -hmm. of crazy to say because I'm a publisher as well, right? Right. I'm a writer, but I'm saying like learning what your own story is, is like is a great foundation uh, to build on. And so I would mm -hmm. say find out the, the, the unwritten story in your, in your family and maybe you become the first person to pen it for future right. generations. Right. Oh, that's well, that's very inspiring. Thank you so much, Enzo. This has been very illuminating. And um, uh, it, it's been wonderful speaking with you. And hopefully uh, we'll have you on again. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Leah. All right. Take care, everyone. And thank you for joining us.